thank you for all your accommodations of me, like this, sitting down here in front of you. I feel kind of low here today. I, I can I can only see. I hope you can see me well enough so so it's uh, you can kind of follow along. But but thank you for accommodating me, and just being just sitting down for this uh, teaching. Um, one of the most important questions in all of human life. Is you think this is gonna? Some of you might want to snicker at this, but one of the most important questions is who's to blame? Whose fault is it? Uh, you know, for example, the fact that the bulletin says Brad Raby is preaching today—that is—that's it's my fault. It's clearly my fault. That's what the bulletin says. I I thought that I this morning sometime I was getting ready to come and I thought, oh, did I put? I, I brought a bulletin for. Uh, uh, for Mary to uh, to um, last week's bull, I brought last week's bulletin with corrections on it to, for this week's bulletin, and left it for Mary and and uh, and I thought, oh, did I ch- oh I think I forgot to mark out his name, you know, that it would be me instead of him. So it's so it's my it's my fault, and and it's only a sh- and it's an important question whose fault who's to blame, and it's only a short step from that question is to you know what should be done about it who should pay. Uh, Who's due a comeuppance, and what should it be? Now, I'll say in my own defense that I think I was probably hasty in 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 uh, in adjusting last, you know, in, in editing last week's bulletin for this week, because I was very anxious and eager to watch a terrible football game, and I, you know, I was just I was all wound up about that. And I'll suggest that I've already paid. I've already paid enough. I, you know, the punishment of uh, watching that game was was enough, but. It really is. It really is true. It's a. It's a. It's a very important question in human life. Who's to blame? You know, in almost any county in the in the United States, um, it, one of the most impressive buildings in town is what? It's the courthouse, and a, and a lot of what happens there is dedicated to that question, isn't it? Whose fault? What should be done? Who's to blame? And, and it's a valid question. I'm not going to say here today that it's something, you know, you shouldn't, it's not, it, not really important. It, it, you know, it's important in the world, but it shouldn't be important to us. It's, it, it's uh, no, that's not true. Because we live in a moral universe that God made. Uh, God is the one who set the universe up with, as a moral universe with moral parameters. He said, okay, what's the first thing he said? Here are the rules. Here are the rules. You can eat from any tree but that one. And if you do eat from that one, there, there are going to be some severe consequences, right? And when things went awry, God was the one who, he brings up fault. He brings up blame. He says in Genesis 3, do we have that? He said, who? This is what, it's blame, it's fault. Who told you that you were naked? He says to Adam. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You know, who's to blame? First, but That's the first book of the Bible. You go to the last book of the Bible, and you see that these issues of fault and blame and recompense and payback are no less important. For example, go to Revelation 20. Then I saw... So we have Revelation 20, yes. Then I saw 
a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. First book, last book is, is this blame, fault, recompense. Is it important? You go to the last chapter of the Bible, among the final verses, you read this. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay, to every, to repay everyone for what he has done. So we're not going to say here today, and we can't say if we believe the Bible that questions of fault and blame are unimportant, or that a desire to see wrong set right, including recompense for the guilty, is an inappropriate concern, an illegitimate question. We could even make the case, and I'm not going to take the time to do that, but we, I, can, I think we could make a case that the desire to see wrongdoing, wrongdoers brought to justice is a feature of, is a part of what it means to be made in God's image because that's what God's like. Genesis 1, Revelation 20, Revelation 22, and, and a lot in between. And the, but the complication for believers is that the, is that the, the, uh, the God of the Bible, the God as we read him described to us in the Bible, he, he, he is, he is very specifically delegated the right and responsibility, the agency for dispensing justice, for exacting recompense. And in some cases, it's the right of the and responsibility of the government to punish wrongdoing. Won't take the time, Romans 13. And in some, and no one else, no one else, by the way. The state does not, Romans 13 says, the state does not bear the sword for nothing. But that doesn't mean that you and I can take up the sword of the state and go out dispensing justice as we see fit. There are God-ordained authorities in the state, in the church, in the family, and we are not to usurp those God-given authorities for ourselves, even if we think the God-ordained ones aren't getting it done. They're not doing right. And in many cases, many cases, God, we might even say most, God reserves to himself. He reserves to himself alone the right of exacting retribution. He says, leave it alone. I'll take care of it. I'll sort it out in my time. And it can be a very frustrating and tempting to step in yourself especially, of course, especially if you're the one who's gotten a raw deal. Not someone else, but you, yourself. When you're the one who's done, been done wrong. Uh, as, I, as I consider the Bible, I, I think maybe you, you, the poster child for this kind of situation uh, would be Jacob's son, Joseph. Joseph. Boy, was he ever done wrong. 
You, you remember Joseph? You remember the Joseph I'm talking about? Let's kind of just kind of go over the lowlights a little bit. Joseph, the eleventh uh, of Jacob's twelve sons, one of only two sons born to Rachel, the love of Jacob's life. Joseph was clearly Daddy's favorite. The Bible tells that in the plainest of language. Genesis 37, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, it says. Can't get plainer than that. Same verses, the same verse, that same verse tells us that Jacob made for his son Joseph, his favorite son Joseph, a robe of many colors or a coat of many colors, your translation might say. Which, which, how did that function, by the way? I don't mean, yeah, it probably kept Jacob, it probably kept Joseph warm, right? It was a daily reminder <laughs> to the brothers, don't you know? A daily reminder that Joseph was the favored one, that he's the favorite. And whether intentionally or not, Joseph only in his naivete, I would say, just he seems to have stoked uh, the sibling rivalry there. Uh, we, we don't know any of the details, but Genesis 37 tells us that the 17-year-old Joseph gave a bad report to their father, and that's, it says something like this uh, in your translation. He gave a bad report to his father about his brother's care for the family livestock. Uh, maybe, at a sermon last week, maybe they, he left the cash sheep laying out there with their legs sticking up in the air, and they just laughed at it. They didn't help him. Yeah, you know, I, when I think about what was the bad report, I, it, that's all it says. He gave a bad report about the brothers. My guess is they, I just picture them selling off a few from time to time and keeping the money and not telling Jacob about it and maybe telling Jacob that, Daddy Jacob, that uh, they got killed by wild animals. That idea did come to them a little later with Joseph. But we don't know what it was. We only know that tattletale Joseph ran and told Daddy that the brothers weren't doing right with uh, taking care of the, of the livestock. Um, and then there were those, you know, Joseph just stoking this, this rivalry, this, this uh, animosity. Um, these dreams Joseph had, that, that very transparent prophetic dreams, but very transparent that show everybody figured it out. You didn't need some fancy, uh, you didn't need Joseph to interpret them, but it has the it has the uh, the brothers bowing down to Joseph, all the brothers bowing down to Joseph. Then he has another dream that brings the whole clan into it, and even even Jacob is bowing down before Joseph. And 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 Jacob, the father, even even Daddy Jacob scolds Joseph for that one. He scolded him for it. So, at an opportune time. When Joseph had been sent by Jacob to go check on the brothers, go check on the flocks, as he approaches from afar, they see him coming, and they say, well, here comes the dreamer. Why don't we just kill him and throw him into one of these pits, and we'll make up a story to tell Dad of what happened to him and just put him out of our misery, and we'll see what comes of his dreams then. But when they had taken Joseph and they threw him down in a pit, Judah had an even better, brother Judah had an even better idea. He said, look at all these foreign traders coming through here, these caravans coming through here. Let's sell them to one of these slave traders and let, let him just take them, let, you know, let them just take Joseph wherever they're going to take him. 
So Joseph sold and carried away captive down into Egypt. The brothers keep the fancy coat, tear it up some, spread animal blood on it, take it back to Jacob, and tell Jacob that Joseph has been devoured by wild animals, and this is all we found. This is all that's left of him. And Jacob mourned how he mourned. You know, I, I just think the brothers must have thought, look at that. Would he mourn like that for us? Would he mourn like that for any of us? You know, the Bible suggests maybe the answer is no. But the plan worked. And they got rid of the annoying little brother. And they kept the secret to themselves for years. Joseph, for his part, was sold to a high, you know, the, the, the slave traders that got him sold him to a high Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar, where Joseph was blessed by the Lord and everything the boss put him to, but also where Joseph was falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar for a attempted rape and was thrown into prison. Now, you, you know, prisons are different in the, you know, the ancient times and in the Bible. You, you'll notice this. When I tell you this, you'll say, that's true. You know, it looks like nobody is sentenced to prison for X number of years for punishment. They're just thrown in there for, you know, just for in safekeeping, you know, being incarcerated until they can decide what to do with them. So he's just thrown into the prison. And, and you, you probably remember the story. Sometime later, Pharaoh's own chief cupbearer, and his uh, chief baker, they had angered Pharaoh somehow. They'd done something wrong. And they got thrown into the same prison as Joseph. And since God was blessing Joseph in whatever he did, whatever he put his hand to, the, the, the warden, you know, the, the keeper in charge of Joseph had, gave him responsibilities to put him in touch with these two. And they each had dreams. The baker and the cupbearer, they had dreams that seemed prophetic. And they were. They were revelations from God, very similar dreams and Joseph who in who had this gift of interpreting these revelations these dreams he he did so for these men and the and the essence was that the cupbearer would be restored to his place but the baker was going to be executed and that's what happened and Joseph said to the cupbearer this is uh this is uh Genesis 40 14 I think we have that one in do we yes Joseph says, only remember me, it means Joseph, of course, when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. He says, I, you know, I shouldn't, so here's Joseph saying, I shouldn't be here. Would you please mention me to Pharaoh? Right there, he's not doing, a, he's not serving a sentence, right? He's not doing 10 years for attempted rape or anything like that. He's just there languishing in the prison. Would you mention me to Pharaoh? Because I shouldn't be here. I was done wrong to wind up here in Egypt. I was done wrong again to end up here in this prison. And here's, here's Genesis. Look at this verse, 4023. Yet the chief cupbearer, and he got, he got out. 
did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Well, can this guy catch a break? Can Joseph catch a break? And Genesis 41, and I don't have that, I didn't give this to Wayne to put up, but here's how Genesis 41 begins. After two whole years, and that's what it says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. And you know, Pharaoh has these dreams, he has these prophetic seeming, strange, revelatory seeming dreams. You know, the cows and the, the lean cows and the fat cows and the lean cows eating up the fat cows and all of that. None of, it, none of the king's charlatan um, spiritual advisors dared offer an interpretation of the dreams. And finally, two whole years later, the cupbearer, he remembered Joseph to Pharaoh. And he says something like, Pharaoh, you know, when you and the when you had the baker and I in prison, there was a young man in there who could interpret dreams and he interpreted ours exactly right. Maybe he could help you. And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph and Joseph not only interprets the dreams, but he advises Pharaoh wisely on how to lead the nation of Egypt through the seven years of, of, of plenty, you know, seven years, uh, uh, seven fat years, the seven years of plenty that were coming and how to get through the seven years of want and privation and famine that are coming after that. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of everything. He puts him in charge of the whole project of how to do this. He makes Joseph his right-hand man, gives him tremendous authority to act on behalf of Pharaoh himself. He becomes the number two man in all of Egypt. What a turn of events. And so it's the seven years of, of drought, when they come, this is years later, you have seven years of Seven fat years, you know, seven years of plenty first. They affect not just Egypt, but the whole region, including the promised land. And back in the promised land, uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob and his brother, their, their families are in danger of dying of starvation. And that's what the Bible says. And so Jacob, the word is that they've some wise politician sword and Egypt has saved up grain and, and uh, you go to Egypt he sends his, his sons to Egypt to buy food to buy grain and when the brothers come they literally bow before Joseph they go to the person in charge of the grain and Joseph recognizes them but they don't recognize him and you you can see how that would happen. Can, can you see how that is that? I hope that's not a problem for you. That you know they think how could that be that they wouldn't recognize their brother? Well, first of all, it's been years and years, and Joseph is the last person in the world they would have ever expected to see. And not only that, he's he's a high Egyptian official now, and I just picture him presenting that way, like a clean-shaven Egyptian. Not like the bearded Hebrew, but like this clean-shaven Egyptian. In other words, I, uh, you could judge whether this is right or not, but I certainly picture Joseph looking at this point a lot more like Yul Brynner than Charlton Heston.
And suddenly there, though, but there it is. He, he recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And suddenly, Joseph holds all the cards, right? And he's in the perfect position to exercise some payback. I, I, I think in some Christian teaching about what happens from this point forward in the story, um, there's a tendency to kind of airbrush Joseph and his motives um, and actions from this point. I mean, he's the hero of the story, and we don't want to sully him. Uh, so it's said that Joseph, well, he's just, in all what happens after, he's just testing. And the Bible says this, he's testing his brothers uh, to see if their attitudes have truly changed, to see if they're really changed. But, when it, you know, whenever I read the text from this point forward, whenever I read it, um, it sure looks to me that Joseph is also, yes, he's testing them, but he's also giving them a little taste of their own medicine. He's letting them twist in the wind a little bit. He's, he's seeing how they like a little dose of unjust imprisonment. See how they like like being in prison with their lives hanging in the balance on the whim of some official. I mean, think of this, what he does. First, Joseph first thing, Joseph accuses them of being spies. No, we're starving to death back home. We just want grain to buy. No, you're spies. You've come out. To, you're just saying that so you can see where our weak spots is. Weak spots are, you're going to, you're going to attack, you know, you're going to raise an army and you're going to attack Egypt. Isn't that ridiculous? But he accuses them of being spies. Then he proposes that, uh, then he throws them all in jail. He throws them all in jail. Then he proposes, Joseph proposed that one of them remain incarcerated while the others took grain to their people and returned with their younger brother who they'd let on that they'd had a younger brother, Benjamin, to prove themselves right, to prove their story. But when they went back, Joseph had his people put the money that they had paid for the grain back in the sacks with the grain. And when they discovered it, they were scared to death that they would be accused of stealing the grain or somehow keeping the money. You know, they, they got the grain, but they kept the money. And when they finally return, and I say finally, it's, a, it's a sometime later, when they finally return with the young Benjamin, uh, Joseph had them in his house for a, like a banquet, a feast, and he seated them in birth order, which freaked them out. <laughs> here's, how, here's how the Bible puts it. And the men looked at each other in amazement. <laughs> like, what is going on here? And then he loaded them down with food again to take back to their families. But this time, he not only, Joseph had not only the money put back in their sacks, but also in Benjamin's sack that his donkey probably was carrying, he put Joseph's goblet, his silver goblet, the special goblet that he would drink from. And also, this is a problem. We won't go into it now and explain it, but that he did divination with. That's, you know, that, that's worth talking about as a separate subject, but it was his special cup setting them up for what? A charge of theft, right? And so 
they, they're on their way back, and the Egyptians chase them down. Hey, we've got with the, the, Joseph's, they wouldn't say Joseph, but it, this, the goblet's missing. We don't have it. Search our stuff. And they do. Lo and behold, they find it in Benjamin's things. And Benjamin was placed under arrest. And I really can't read this story. This goes chapter after chapter after chapter. I really can't read it without having some idea that Joseph is kind of just jerking them around and, and you know, uh, sharing with them some of the flavor of what his life has been like the past several years. Now you know how I felt. And it wasn't until Judah begged to take Benjamin's place in jail that Joseph revealed himself as their long-lost brother whom they had sold into slavery. And Joseph told them at that point that he had come to understand that God had orchestrated the events of his life, Joseph's life, to save Jacob and his family, to save his brothers and their families, to save a lot of other people from starvation. So don't worry. He was not, therefore, bent on vengeance, on payback, on retribution. And they had a hard time. They had a hard time believing that. For years they did. When, when, when Jacob had come to Egypt, and they moved the whole operation to Egypt, 17 years later, the old man Jacob died. And the brothers said, 17 years later, the brothers said, now's the time. Joseph's going to get his vengeance now. The old man's dead. They, they were afraid of it like a godfather situation. The dawn is dead. Michael is going to settle all family business. You know, he's going to settle all accounts. Or, you don't even, well, we could go with King David. King David, who's not going to come till afterwards, but King David does something like this. King David tells his son Solomon when David's about to die, he says, when I'm gone, you know what to do with Shimei. You remember that? That's what they're afraid of. But Joseph assures them once again, and here, here's the verse, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the text. That's the one you should think about today. That's the, that's the text for today. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God had a good purpose in my life, for my life. That's how I have to think about it, Joseph says. That's how I do think about it. Therefore, I am not hell-bent for payback. And I'm not consumed with blaming you for my suffering. For weeks, and leave that up there for a minute. For weeks, I've been thinking about that it. God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Well, the, here's what I've been thinking about. The brother's it is just selling Joseph into slavery. 
and they meant that for they meant for Joseph to come to a bad end. And a lot of bad things happened to Joseph because they sold him into slavery. But God's it had to have included a whole lot more than just that. Because what are the odds of having been sold into slavery that Joseph would wind up the number two person in all of Egypt and in a position to save all, the, all those people? They're, they're, they're infinitesimal. It just wouldn't have happened. Now, how's that happen? Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, about two or three in the morning, I, I hope I don't get in trouble here, but if I, well, it's, if I do, I do. About two or three in the morning, beds trying to sleep, and I was fighting with my pillow. You know, I was trying to pull it over and adjust it, but I was leaning on it at the same time, so I was kind of rocking around and trying to raise myself out and pull the pillow out and adjust it, and I kind of rocked over toward Robin. And at the same time, she just, for some reason, she woke up, she was going to roll over too, and she rolled over to it toward me. Two or three in the morning, we're both sleeping, and we bang heads right in the middle of we banged heads right in the middle of the bed. And Robin woke up just for a split second. She woke up and she said this. She said, what are the odds? And said, she said, what are the odds? And then went back to sleep. So what are the odds of having been sold into slavery that Joseph would arise to number two in the, in the government? They're just impossible. So God's cause of chain and effect included, it had to include much, much more than, than just Joseph being sold into Egypt. Sold into slavery, rather. I, 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 tried, I went through this story and I tried to call out, because I'm thinking, what's in that it? What's God's it? What did all, what did all God have to do or arrange and be sovereign over to, for Joseph to end up in that position. And it's way more than the slave, way more than what happened with the brothers. One, certainly the toxic sibling rivalry between Joseph and his brothers was a key factor in Joseph's life playing out the way, he did, the way it did. That's part of God's plan. A few weeks ago, here's another family, family thing, more troubled maybe. Uh, a, f a few weeks ago, we get this report from our Alab about our Alabama granddaughters where they're, they're fighting all day long, bickering all day long, and their mother says to them, says to uh, the girls, can you please just stop, can you please stop fighting for just five minutes? And they have one of these Alexa things. Alexa, is that right, Alexa? They have one of those, uh, you know, is it Google or anyway? They got one of those uh, electronic spies in their house for some reason, and they and, and and Eden uses it, and so she says, "Mama says, can you please stop fighting for just five minutes?" And Eden says, "Alexa, set a timer for five minutes and one second." All right, all right. So you laugh, and you know, sibling rivalry is a real thing, right? And it's usually something we laugh about. But listen, sometimes it turns toxic, right? And real soul damage 
is done by a brother or a sister or another, you know, not just sibling rival, but a, a mom, a dad, stepfather, stepmother. You know? Well, this, certainly this sibling rivalry, this not just funny sibling rivalry, this toxic sibling rivalry. But you, you know what also has to be part of God's plan? I would think in the cause and effect. Jacob's ill-advised and just wrong favoritism. What good could come of that? Of, of Jacob's favoritism for Joseph? Nothing good did come of it, right? Except, you know, in the end, we, we, we might say, but a lot of pain. Third, being sold to Potiphar was a key feature of God's plan too. Why? Because that's what put Joseph in the orbit of people who were involved at the highest levels of Egyptian government. That's what put him in touch with kind of the upper crust. That's what made it where he could be, you know, maybe some end up in, in Pharaoh's house at some point. Uh, being sold to Potiphar was important to bring about God's intended outcome because when he was accused of falsely accused of attempted rape, he was tossed in the white collar prison, where where uh, you know these high the, these high level uh, criminals were kept. And Genesis thirty nine twenty, I didn't give this. I don't think I gave this to to Wayne either. But I'll just read it to you. It makes this point. And Joseph. Oh yes, did I have Genesis thirty nine, Wayne? No. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. It makes that point. He's there with the high-level criminals. And that wouldn't have happened if Joseph had been sold as a slave to anyone else. Fourth, it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar. So that was part of God's plan, too. God's it. He was in God's it. God meant it for good. This injustice was a part of God's plan, God's it in Joseph's life. And by the way, I, you know, we, let's connect the dots here because we're almost out of time, but if you've been done wrong, it's a part of God's plan for your life too. Fifth, being forgotten by Pharaoh's cupbearer for two whole years was a part of God's plan. Why? Well, I think it's because it had to be the right time when, when he, Joseph was mentioned to Pharaoh. If the cupbearer had gotten out of prison and said to Pharaoh at some point, by the way, there was a fellow there, you know, he's falsely, sounds like he's not there for any good reason, but, you know, he and no. It, it had to be when the Pharaoh was highly motivated to, to, to bring Joseph out of the prison to meet him in this matter of interpreting dreams. Otherwise, it might have come to nothing. And so as we can see, all of it, it was to get Joseph to that point where he could do what he did and save all these people from starvation. And so as we consider our grievances, how we've been done wrong, the bad breaks the people who kept us from getting those good breaks, 
the betrayals, the disappointments, whether it's brother, sister, mom, dad, husbands, wives, others, here's the truth. They may have meant it for evil, but God meant it. And remember that his it is a whole lot bigger for good. There's a New Testament version of Genesis 50:20. It's Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now that doesn't mean that all things are ultimately good. You know, toxic toxic sibling rivalry is bad. Being sold into slavery is bad. Faking your brother's death is bad. Being falsely accused of rape is bad. Being forgotten in prison is bad. But think of it like this. God's, and how to, how to repeat this, how to rephrase this. God's sovereign goodness over all things in my life, in your life, toward his own people is such that he uses even evil things, including the evil that people do against us, to bring about his good purposes in our lives and through our lives. And therefore, we have to say this to end with, because this is, where jo- this is Joseph's uh, spiritual journey, say. His, his maturing. Therefore, bitterness over grievances suffered is incompatible with a settled belief in God's sovereign goodness. Uh, an an obsession with exacting personal vengeance or seeing that the people get paid back is incompatible with God as he's presented to us in the Bible. And I think when, when the opportunity presented itself, Joseph wanted to stick it to his brothers at long last. He wanted them to experience some of the emotions and anxiety and suffering that he had experienced. But he couldn't keep it up. And he had to give it up. And he had to abandon the bitterness. And he had to give up the desire for personal vengeance. And so do you. And so do I. If we are his people if we are sons and daughters by adoption, if we have been called according to his purpose. And yeah, there are people who mean to do us evil, but God means it, his big it. And and what do I mean by that? It's not only the wrong that you may have suffered, but every circumstance of your life, from your physical form and from your health, whether whether you're healthy, whether you're good looking, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're, whether you're, what your marital situation is, your family situation, whether you're married, whether you're unmarried, whether your family is like the Walton family or the Manson family, you know, all of those things, every, and everything that's happened to you since you came into this world, all of those things, God meant it for good to bring about his good and holy purposes in your life 
even if you're not to the point yet where you can see why any of those things make any sense, like Joseph's two whole years in prison. And even longer than that when you consider the whole ordeal. So trust God in it. And let him sort out the divine justice. He says he'll do it from the first book of the Bible to the last. But it's his. I said, uh, to, to close, I said earlier Joseph could well be the poster child for unjust suffering. But there's one who's kind of in an exceptional category that's greater than all. Can you guess who that is? Jesus. Jesus. The sinless son of God suffering for the sins of the guilty. And when we consider Jesus, we're not tempted to put ourselves in the place of Joseph. We're in the place of the brothers. Our sins sent him to the cross. And by his suffering, we're forgiven. Thank God that God, is the, that God has a heart to find a way to set the guilty free. Right? And it's, it's us who are invited, even commanded, to rest in the forgiveness of our sins and extend that forgiveness of the guilty to others. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Father, uh, help this message to salve the souls, just to be a, a balm on the souls of any who need to hear it. Who recognize in Joseph themselves. Uh, free any from a bitterness of soul, bitterness of spirit. To, to rest in the forgiveness of sins for themselves and also to, to uh, rest in, in your sovereign will for others. Lord, we know you're just, but we thank you that you are also merciful and kind because we have received mercy. Thank you for setting the guilty free, for that's what we are, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.